When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here with Lisa Feldman Barrett, the neuroscientist who's written multiple books that have been really revolutionary in the way that I think about the brain. And so I'm very excited to welcome you to the show. It's my pleasure to be here, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Now, this is going to be a lot of fun. I was saying before we started rolling that um, you're, I have a working model of how the brain works that has been tremendously useful to me in my life. Um, and your books come in and just sort of knock that all around and say, you know, you're really thinking about this in the wrong way. Um, and I wanted to start with a quote. Um, this is, this isn't from your latest book, seven and a half lessons about the brain, but it, it really gets to the heart of what I find so intriguing about the book. And this is you talking in an interview. You said, not all people in all cultures have emotions. Everybody has affect assuming they have a neurotypical brain, but they don't all have emotions. And I was like, say what? Uh, I'd love for you to talk through the difference between an emotion and an affect and how it is humanly possible that some people don't have quote unquote emotions. Sure, I'm really happy to do that. Um, so just before I start though, I should say, you know, one of the most cherished distinctions in Western civilization is the difference between a thought and a feeling. So um, this is something that seems so, it seems so obvious to us that mm, people wouldn't even ask whether that's something that's generally experienced around the world, but actually there are many cultures around the world that don't make that distinction at all. So in those cultures, there's experience, but thinking and feeling are not separate experiences. And they're certainly not separate experiences that struggle for control of your behavior. That's a really Western view. Um, and so, um, you know, I think it's really important to ask questions like, as many do, uh, like what is, what is generally true about the human brain um, so that all humans are endowed, you know, with certain capabilities versus what is, um, what is learned. And this is the general nature versus nurture kind of question. I think it's, it's really, really important to understand that you know, we have the kind of nature that requires nurture, meaning we have the kind of genes that build, um, that give us a general brain plan and babies are born with that brain plan, but they're basically born with brains that are under construction and they learn their, the wiring instructions really come from the world and from their own bodies um, and um, from the social world. And so uh, in cultures that ha don't make sense of sensations in terms of emotion versus cognition or thoughts versus feelings, those people have different other experiences that we don't have and that really are hard for us to wrap our heads around. Just like when you listen to a language that you don't know, you, you just hear noise, you don't really hear words. Um, it's sort of a, a sim something similar to that. Um, but to answer your question, so, um, 
I like to start with what's your brain's most important job? Your brain's most important job is not thinking, it's not feeling, it's not seeing, it's not hearing, it's to run your body. Um, so you have a body filled with uh, systems for breathing, for um, you know circulating blood, for getting rid of waste, um, and so on and so forth, for protecting you from, from viruses. Um, and all the cells in your body require glucose, oxygen, water, salt, lots and lots and lots of nutrients. And so your brain's job is to run that is to run your the systems of your body in a in a metabolically efficient way. And that's true of all brains. And some scientists think that's why brains evolved, or at least one of the really important reasons why brains evolved. As bodies got bigger over evolutionary time, brains uh, were needed and also got bigger. So as your body and your brain, so you, as your brain is regulating your body, your body is sending sense data back to your brain. So you, you can think of it as a constant conversation, actually, between your brain and your body that's happening in the world. And, you know, we're not really wired to feel those sense data very directly. Um, so think about it. You know, you right now, for example, you are we're talking to each other and we're looks like we're just calmly, you know, listening to each other. But actually inside your body is a whole drama going on that you are largely unaware of. And that's a really good thing because if you were aware of it, you would never pay attention to anything outside your own skin ever again. So just think about the last time you had a stomach ache, for example, or you had constipation or something wrong with your GI tract. You know, like um, philosophers call this tragic embodiment, this um the fact that we, we're really largely unaware of what's going on inside our own bodies, but when we become aware, man, all our attention goes there, and we can't, you know. So think about the last time you sort of cut your finger, or mm. you know, you just you all your attention goes to your body. So that doesn't usually happen for us, and so how are we supposed to keep track of whether things are generally copacetic or or where there's a problem there? Um, and so what evolution has given us is uh, a workaround. It's given us really simple feelings, like feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling worked up, feeling calm, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. These really general feelings come from the brain's regulation of the body and the body's um, sense data, sending sense data back to the brain. So these general feelings come from this co constant conversation between the brain and the body and those feelings are sometimes really intense. So when everything is pretty good, you can feel pretty great. And when everything, when you're, when there's a problem with your brain's regulation of your body, or let's say your, your brain is directing your body to spend a lot of energy, um, you can feel pretty crappy actually. And that signal is kind of like a general barometer for generally speaking, how are things going? It doesn't really tell you what to do about the situation. It just tells you, are things going okay? Are things going not okay? Um, you know, um, and those feelings are with you always from the moment that you're born until the moment that you die. They're not emotions. They're what people call mood 
or um, what scientists call affect. So mood or, or affect um, is with you all the time, whether you're emotional or not. And sometimes we experience the affect as our own reactions to things like, um, I like you, or I like that drink, or that's, I really like that painting. And sometimes we experience affect as a property of the thing itself. Like that guy's an asshole. That's a really beautiful painting. That's a really delicious drink. So it's always with us, but sometimes affect is in the foreground of our attention. And sometimes it's in the background and we just treat it like it's a property of the thing itself, like the thing that we're interacting with. So as I said, you know, you, you don't, affect just tells you whether things are generally okay with your, the systems in your body or whether there's, your, your brain is um, having trouble regulating your body or whether there's some deficit in the energy regulation in your body. And um, it doesn't really give you any more specific information about what to do about that situation. Um, your brain pretty much has to guess at the causes, as I'm sure we'll discuss later. Um, and some of those guesses are emotions. So basically, when your brain makes an emotion, what it's doing is it's making sense of what's going on inside your body in relation to what's going on around you in the world. Meaning that your brain is actively applying meaning to how you feel in this particular context? Exactly. So the way to think about it is something like this. Like your brain, your brain is stuck in a dark, silent box called your skull, your whole life, right? And it's receiving sense data through your sense organs, through your eyes, through your ears, through your nose, and so on. And it's also receiving sense data from your body. These sense data, the changes in, in light and in air pressure and, you know, tugs and so on from your body, aches and whatever, these are outcomes of some set of causes. They're the effects of some set of causes. So when you hear a loud bang, what is that bang? Is it... Did somebody drop something on the ground? Did a door slam? Did somebody hit your car? Is it a gunshot? You know, what is it? What was that bang? Similarly, when you have a tug in your chest, are you anxious? Are you having trouble breathing? Is that the beginning of a heart attack? Are you just feeling a, a moment really poignantly? Um, what, what is it? What caused it? Your brain stuck in your skull doesn't know anything about the causes, it only is receiving the outcomes. So it has to guess at the causes. This is how, called- How low fidelity, sorry, say that and then I'll ask the question. I was just gonna say, this is called a reverse inference problem um, or, or an inverse inference problem. And so your brain has to guess and, it's, and it is guessing, it's guessing using your past experience. So it's guessing what those sensations mean in this situation by referring to past experiences that were similar in some way. So the brain's trapped in a box. It doesn't actually know what's going on. And it's not even necessarily as a device created to be objective. It's just trying to keep you alive long enough to have children that have children. And um, what I'm curious about is, it, are the signals coming to the brain quite low fidelity in that when people think of emotion, you think of this 
rich emotional life where you get swept off your feet by love. You get overcome with rage where you actually feel capable of more than you did a minute prior. Like when I think about the intoxicant that is righteous indignation, when you feel this just, I am right to pursue this thing, it actually makes me more bold. Like it it steps me into a mini personality that acts differently than I would without that. So when when I first read that idea that there are cultures without emotion and then hearing the explanation that you just give that it's maybe, um, I'll be interested to get your take on whether that's semantics and it's we're sort of all going through the same thing of you get a low resolution thing pitched up to you, your brain's job is in context to say this means this, my what I am is a prediction machine and therefore based on this in this context, feel this way and now I'm stepping outside of what I've heard you say into sort of what I think of as my own experience. And now in this context, you move into sort of this micro personality and you act in accordance with, you know, whether it's to be aggressive, whether it's to be demure, um, to be a diplomat, you know, whatever you sort of based on historical um experiences you think is right for that moment. But my real question is about the level of fidelity of what the body is coughing up. Is it is it giving you four or five sort of blunt instruments and in everything else's context? So there are many, many, many interesting things in what you just said. Um, I'll answer your question, but then I want to come back to this issue of is it just semantics? Because that's like one of my most favorite questions in the whole world. So um, uh, it so what's the fidelity? Well, what what your brain is doing with the sense data from your body, it's doing with all the sense data it's receiving from the world. So the sense data that it receives from the world is always ambiguous, noisy, and um, partial. But even in those cases, visual information is very high fidelity. That's why you see with high, in high dimensionality, you, you, you know, you can see a lot of detail, you can see things very sharply. Um, for the most part, I mean, if you if you're a neurotypical brain, and your eyes are working properly, and so on. Um, auditory information, also pretty high fidelity. Touch, also pretty high fidelity, actually. And um, what's interesting is your distance senses, that is, things that allow you to sense at a distance far from your body. So that's vision, audition to some extent, um, and um, touch, because touch evolved in the water, and in the water, somatosensory touch is a distant sense. Interesting. Actually. Yeah, it lets you know whether something is close to you or far away from you um, by vibration. Um, all high fidelity, very high fidelity, actually. And for touch, it's really interesting because certain parts of your body have much more high fidelity than others. So um, like the your arm, you know, you, you can localize you can localize pretty well when somebody when something touches you. In fact, you don't even have sensors for water in your skin at all because we evolved in the water. Right. So we don't have sense. We don't have senses for in our skin for water that just wouldn't make any sense. Um, but nonetheless, you can feel the tiniest drop of water on your skin when it's about to rain. Right. So, um, but certain parts of our brains have much, uh, certain parts of our body have much more high fidelity, like lips, finger, hands, fingers, genitals. Um, and then certain parts less like, you know, the tip of your, on your leg or, you know, on your arm or what have you. 
the data from your body um, inside your body, it's debatable how high fidelity it is. And, and when I say it's debatable, what I mean is that scientists are debating this actively. We're all, we're trying to figure out that, figure that out. It seems like the information from your gut, from the internal parts of your gut, I mean, you have cells inside your intestines that signal all the way up to your brain about nutrient levels, like all the time. So those seem to be pretty high fidelity. You have um, what are called um, ergoreceptors, which are just like little receptors in your muscles that, that indicate to the brain how much um, glucose is being burned, for example. Those seem, it's not clear whether they're high fidelity or not, but they seem, it's not so important to know like whether glucose in a particular muscle cell is being burned. What's generally important is like, you know, in general, how much is the muscle working, right? It's not usually we don't need to know it's like specific, but maybe it's more specific for the purposes of blood flow. We just don't, we just don't really know. What is known is that unlike vision and audition and touch, somatosensory touch outside your body, the information is carried up to the brain um, along very neurons that have very axons uh, and very thick dendrites. So like these are neurons that are, you can think of the information as being carried along very kind of robust axons with very lots of myelin. So lots of, so I mean, I don't know if, how much your audience knows about like how, what a neuron looks like or what have you. So that's why it's, I'm stopping myself. It's come to, up to a up. fair amount. So you can go relatively deep and people will have a rough idea. I, I've given them okay. sort of the layman's description. So I'm sure the things they've heard me say over and over, which are some of the things I want to get into are wrong. Uh, and that, yeah, a little revelatory truth will go a long way. So I'll just say that, that distant senses are carried that that information is carried to the brain on axon on neurons that have axons which are very thick and and they're very myelinated and they they fire very fast as a consequence they're also very expensive the information that's being sent metabolically expensive yeah the information that's being sent to the brain from the internal um, systems of your body is being sent along really small axons that are not myelinated or are lightly myelinated. And what that means is that the actually for the unmyelinated neurons, the axons can talk to each other as the information is going up to your brain. So there's actually a lot of information sharing that's going on between the between different neurons as it's reaching the brain. And scientists are still trying to figure out whether does that improve the fidelity of the information or does it dilute it. It's just not, so I, I, the general consensus I would say is that it's, you're not, the, it, the information from your body is not, not that high fidelity, but I'm, I'm giving this big caveat because we don't experience it as high fidelity. You and I do not experience it. When you have an ache in your gut, you don't experience it. Like you don't know where in your intestine the problem mm. is. I mean, think about people who have appendicitis, right? Usually what happens is your whole abdomen is very sore and it's only right before the appendix bursts that you feel very, very specifically where the pain is. So 
it's not really clear. Um, and that's part of the tricky bit is to know, how do you know whether some tension in your chest is anxiety or difficulty breathing or the beginnings of a heart attack? You, you can't know. Your brain actually is just guessing. It's guessing based on everything it's learned from your past experiences, from what you've watched in movies, from the books you've read, from the people that you've talked to. It's making a guess and it's always making a guess. And so the question that you asked about, um, you know, well, how could it be that people don't have emotions? Is this just really semantic? I guess what I would say is the following. First of all, when people say, is it just semantic? I just love that phrasing because what is semantics? It's meaning. Is it just meaning? Everything is just meaning. I mean, like, I, you know, that's not like, that's not trivial. That's like, you know. I think when people um, say that, though, and certainly myself, what I'm oh, getting know, at is, I know you're saying, is, is, is it trivial? Is it just descriptive? It's like, uh, right. Are we using the different words for the same thing, essentially? Yeah, no, we're not. No, we're not. So let me just let me just say that. Um, that. Uh, when your brain is making meaning of something, when your brain has to guess at what the meaning is of something. I'm, I just want to unpack what that with that, what we think that looks like in the brain. And then you'll see why I'm saying it's not just semantic, it's not just semantic in the way that you mean it. So if we were to stop time right now, your brain would be, have taken an accounting of what's going on in the world right now and what's going on inside your own body. And based on your past experiences, it's gonna make a guess about what's gonna happen next a prediction. What is that prediction? Well, the first thing that prediction is, is a plan for action. The first thing that your brain does to make a prediction, it's not like forecasting, you know, some event. It's forecasting what changes inside the body have to happen to allow certain actions to happen. So it's actually an action plan immediately. Your brain is into an action plan. And then based on the, based on a lot of evidence, actually, from anatomy and from signal processing and from, you know, brain imaging and from observing, you know, single cells, fire and rat brains and so on, all this evidence, what we can say is that your brain makes a, a plan first for action, so changes inside the body to support actual movement. And the consequence of those are sensory predictions or what are called perceptual inferences that prepare your body to see and hear and feel something in the next moment. So meaning differences are, it's not like your brain is evaluating the meaning of something and then prepares you to act. The preparation for action is the meaning. That's the meaning of those sensory signals from the brain's point of view. And what you experience is a consequence of your actions. It's not the other way around. It's not like you experience something and then you act. It's that based on how things are now, your brain predicts how you should act. And then it predicts, well, what are you likely to experience based on that action in this situation the last time it happened? So what does that mean? What it means is that if you live in a culture where things are, just to use an example from the book, um, where things are um, uncertain, you're, you're not able to predict really well, 
and your life might be at stake because of it, you will go to sleep. And there you in mentioned a culture, culture, I forget which culture Bali, but you mentioned in Bali, Bali, where that's Bali. like the culturally actually, encouraged response to fear. That's what you teach your children to do when they're afraid. That is what it means to be afraid. You fall asleep. And interestingly enough, if you look in the animal world, you can see that there is this um, what's called brachycardia, which is a slowing of the heart. Because think now, think in the ocean, in the ocean, right? Um, what do you do when there's a predator around, like a shark who can detect your heartbeats if you're a fish? You slow your heartbeat. You slow everything down. And you just, if you remain still and you slow your heart, the shark can't find you. <laughs> so you sink in, you know, if you sink in down to the, you know, or you sink behind a, a plant or whatever, and you just are still and silent, not with your heart beating wildly, with it calmed and slow, the shark will pass you by. And in fact, there's a really great um, Netflix documentary right now called um, My Octopus Teacher, which mm. I think is, is everybody should watch. It's an amazing movie. It's pretty incredible. But you see this little octopus. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You see this little octopus. She does this at, in certain points. She like, she just, she's hiding and she she looks like she's falling asleep. And that's actually what animals sometimes do. So even though falling asleep during fear seems like bizarre to us because, you know, our our stereotype for what you do in fear is you just hightail it out of there. Or you're frozen with your heart beating, you know. And when you chest, say our, are you talking a Western culture? Yeah, I'm talking about I'm talking about a Western. I'm assuming we're both from Western cultures. Maybe that yeah. was an assumption, but no, no, no. Your right assumption. What what is so interesting about the book, and what I want to make sure is coming across, is this idea that we. So you have a chapter in the book, and I might invert the title, but basically, the brain creates multiple minds. And so you maybe humans have one sort of brain architecture plan, but it, the mind as the way that it manifests and the way that they see the world is actually wildly different from culture to culture to culture. Yeah, you're going exactly where I was going. So so we have one general brain plan, right? Um, and it's and it's old. It's an old plan, but it gives us. Like I said before, we have we have the kind of nature that requires nurture. So we we have the kind of genes that require learning. So this brain plan gives us a brain that is unfinished. It gives us, um, you know, a baby's brain that's born under construction, and the baby's brain has to get wiring instructions to finish itself. So an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that's looking for wiring, expecting wiring instructions from the world. Those wiring instructions come from statistical regularities in the world, things that happen in a predictable way. And then the brain learns those things. And what does it mean to learn something? It means that actually the wiring is modified, right? The brain is either tuning up certain connections between neurons or it's getting rid of unused connections because they're metabolically expensive. If you have a typical a neurotypical brain so a baby's brain is born waiting for wiring instructions that come from the baby's the regularities in the baby's own body in the surrounding world you know like a 
uh, I talk about this, you know, um, this is a really common example that if light doesn't hit a baby's retina and make it to the brain um, during the first couple of months of life, the baby's visual system won't finish developing normally. Um, and if a brain is doesn't receive information about a face, it won't learn to see faces. I mean, babies aren't born seeing, knowing what a face is. You have to learn it. And in fact, there's really interesting evidence from people who um, are born with very, very, very bad cataracts. Um, so they can't, um, you know, they can't, um, or corneal damage. So no light is really making it to the brain. Um, and then when they're adults, their, um, you know, corneas are replaced or, or their cataracts are removed. Um, it's not like they can instantly see. It take, they have to learn how to see, just mm. in the same way that you would learn how to speak an, another language. You have to learn where are the breaks in the, in the sounds? What do the sounds refer to? You're learning because there are statistical regularities in the way that sounds um, pair together uh, in a particular language. And it turns out a face is actually a hard thing to, 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 to see. So, um, uh, you know, people, when they have to learn to see a face, Sometimes it, it can take months or even years for them to be able to recognize a face as, for example, male or female. I mean, it's just, it's really, really hard. But it's something that babies learn after a couple of months because, um, actually not even that, they, really they learn probably after a couple of, of weeks um, because they're constantly being presented with faces at a very close distance so they can see them. What are, over, what are they you know, picking faces up on? have regularities. I'm in, sorry? in the book, you talk about the brain's ability to categorize and that you can, that it will categorize based on function. So how's it beginning a, an infant? How's it beginning so quickly to categorize between male and female? Wouldn't it lump them together as caretaker or human or something like that? Oh, what a baby is learning, what a newborn is learning is what is a face? Not who is the face? Is the face male or female? It's just what is a face? What is a face like they're seeing they're seeing things they're experientially blind to what they're seeing. Um, they don't know what a face. It's not like they recognize that a face is a face. So, for example, if I show you any sort of image that even remotely has a face like configuration to it in a piece of toast or, you know, um, in a machine or, you know, something that loosely has a dot here, a dot here and a slit here. You're going to see a face instantaneously. We see faces all over the place that are not actually faces. A baby doesn't do that because a baby doesn't put together that the dark thing here with the light around it and the dark thing here with the light around it and the, you know, so your your eyes and the, the sclera of your eyes, you know, the, the iris and the sclera, you know, they don't see an eye like newborns. They don't know what that is. You know, they don't, there's sound coming out of, you know, sound somewhere coming from, but they don't know what a mouth is. They don't know, you know, babies don't know what these things are. They have to learn what those things, these things are. And their brains are being wired to recognize statistical regularities. And um, babies, I, I guess the point here is that this opens the door for wiring a baby's brain with the concepts and the meaning, the you know, movement related meaning of your culture, which is very, could be very different from another person's culture. So for example, in our 
culture right now in this time, in this era, if you lose someone, if you lose a child, say, you know, a child dies, you feel grief. You feel grief. It's a mental feeling and you may have physical aspects to it, but you feel bereft. In some cultures, when you lose a child, you feel sick. You, you have a sickness, an illness. The, the feelings in your body are understood as an illness. Do you think they're the and same affectation? Like, is that the same? And just the cultural interpretation is well, different? Well, here's the problem. You know, here's the problem. Well, when you say just the cultural interpretation, there is no just the cultural interpretation. When your brain is making a prediction about what something means, that is a very um, uh, sensory motor prediction. There is no culture laid on top. So if I, um, so for example, if I ask you to um, keep your eyes open and imagine in your mind's eye an apple, what do you see in your mind's eye? Um, I see a red apple with a little bit of a golden uh, tint to some places, the little stem sticking out of it. That is quite Great. literally awesome. what I meant. Actually, half the time when I ask that question, people tell me they see a computer. Interesting. Um, which is actually, but okay, so you see an apple and, um, and you know, you know the apple's not there, but you can see the ghost of an apple. You can see it with the color, right? And the shape, yeah. right? Okay. So can you ima imagine grabbing that apple and taking a bite out of that apple? Like, um, can you hear the crunch of the bite? Yes, and feel it. Absolutely. Can you sort of taste a little bit? Maybe it's a little, maybe it's a Macintosh apple, so maybe it's a little tart, but it has some sweetness to it, you know? Yeah, I would say more than I feel that one. I know intellectually that it would be there, but yes. Okay. But so maybe not so much, but the other that the other senses, you, you've got those, right? Definitely. Okay. So you just did this really amazing thing. Your brain changed the firing of its own neurons in your visual system so that you could see the ghost of an apple, even though there is no apple there. And you could hear the crunch of an apple, even though there actually is no bite. And if I had your head stuck in a brain scanner, I would see massive changes in, in visual cortex, increases in activity in auditory cortex, even increases in activity in motor cortex, particularly around your hand and your mouth. In fact, all you have to do with someone is actually say a word and their brains automatically will conjure some image um, that is very what we call multimodal, meaning there's a lot of sensory detail to it. When your brain makes a prediction about what you are likely to see, that's what it's doing. It's actually changing the firing of your own neurons. So when you learn a culturally overlaid meaning, it's not like there's some physical representation and then there's some culture just gets slathered on top like icing on top of an already baked cake. The cultural meaning is adding neural firing that wouldn't, that wasn't there, wouldn't be there without it. So 
If I show you a black and white blobby image, which I've done this, I did this in my TED talk and I do this really routinely because it's one of the best ways to demonstrate this. If I show you a black and white blobby image, most people, when they look at that, they just see a black and white blobby image. And so if we were looking inside your brain, we would see that you were basically seeing visual noise, black and white blobby image. So lots of contrast, but no actual object. And then I can give people an experience really briefly that then their brain can draw on that experience. And then when they're looking at the black and white blobs, all of a sudden they actually see an object there. And then when you look inside the brain, you can see that there's activity that is generally representing an object. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is a, a pretty... It's a pretty great example, and I saw in your talk when you did it. So just for anybody that's um, listening or, or watching, really, uh, you show the blobs, can't tell what they are, and then you show it in color, and you realize it's actually a snake, the one that I saw. And then you go back to the black and white, and now all of a sudden you can retain that those blobs are actually in the shape of a coiled snake. So it's the same image, just sort of with color, without color, um, abstract, more realistic. And... It is very interesting how all of a sudden now your brain sees something that before it couldn't grasp a hold of. Yeah. Now, where where I'm going But wait, with... but why? Yeah, but let me let me just finish the example before. So sorry to cut you off. No, but please. I just want to finish the example. So, but the point is that what you're looking at is exactly the same. So, where is the additional where is the additional imagery coming from? It's coming from your own head. What you see is a combination of what's out there and what's in here. And if what's in here is culturally, is, is put here by something cultural, meaning 
in one culture, one set of knowledge is put there. In another culture, another set of knowledge is put there. Then that means that if there's no just cultural overlay, your actual experience of the sense data is different. It's different because the bits that you're adding are different. Yeah, to me, that is, I, and and um, I, I will try to be more careful with the, the words that I use. Forgive me, I'm going to keep saying just, I'm sure, subconsciously, uh, because what I mean is I'm trying to, so my fascination, my obsession is with usability, right? So in reading your books, it's actually going to change the way that I approach the world and the tools that I have in my toolkit in order to move myself towards my goals. So I can better understand my own neurophysiology. I can, maybe it's, you know, de-escalate a situation, choose a better response that's more likely to move me towards my goal, whatever, if, if the information that you have is more usable. Um, so when I say just culture, what I'm saying is, whoa, that's super powerful if what we're talking about is the brain is giving me um, an affect. It's giving me a feeling. I have a sense of I'm feeling good or mm, something's off. I'm not sure. Maybe it's fatigue. Maybe it's I need more protein. Who knows? But there's something that's off. And one of the first things that I always encourage people to develop if they're struggling in their lives is self-awareness. And part of that self-awareness is a body awareness so that, hey, you're feeling something. Now, if what we're talking about is, hey, there's this the, the massive impact that culture has, which I will say is frame of reference or bundle of beliefs, it's, it is a thing that itself is malleable. So if I can take that affectation, lay a new cultural layer on top of it and sort of see something I couldn't see before, and you may hackle at this, but this to me is very interesting, is is there one culture that has an approach to the affects that they feel that is more useful. Now, to get to useful, we'll have to define useful. I will define it very simply as, does it move you towards your goals? And I'll say the ultimate goal is fulfillment. So is there a culture, Balinese, Western, whatever, that is more likely to move you down a path to fulfillment? Well, what I would say is it's the wrong question. What's the right question? Because because I know you're going to debunk why it's the wrong question, but I want to know what the right question is. I think that'll be very helpful. How many concepts do I are optimal to be able to make in order to achieve my goals efficiently? Meaning cultural ideas that I can use to better contextualize the feeling? Yeah, because it's really not about it's really the way to think about cultures, I think, as systems of practices and beliefs and values and so on, is that they are variable solutions to the same problem. So um, we are social animals. We have to live in groups in order to survive. That's how we evolved as a species. We have socially dependent nervous systems. And so we have this fundamental problem that we have to deal with. And that is, how do we get along with each other, but also get ahead? So how do we um, um, live as a group, but also thrive as an individual? And you, one way to think about cultures is that there are different solutions to that problem. So what it means to be fulfilled is very different in different cultures, actually. Um, we also populate many, many, many 
different climate and geographic locations on the earth. So there are different solutions that are required in order to live in different places. That is, in order to get along versus get ahead, that, that, what that looks like is different in different places. Um, so the, I think the answer to your question is uh, really, I suppose if I just took your question at face value, I would say, no, there's not one culture that does it better because the actual, what it means to be fulfilled actually differs in different cultures. But in a sense, a better question is, is it, will I be more flexible and therefore more apt to achieve my goals if I, if my brain has a choice of making more concepts? So if, if my menu, if my toolkit is much bigger, will I be better off or, or would that be a burden? So does that make it easier or harder? Um, and the answer seems to be it makes it easier. So, so can we go into concepts then for a second? What do you mean exactly by a concept? Well, you, what you mean by a concept when you said like knowledge from your culture, you could call that a concept. But here's what a concept is. Um, so a group of things which are similar in some way is called a category. So you can think about a category, say, as um, a category of cats, right? And, you know, cats are a category. Cats have certain features they share. They're similar because they all have whiskers. They all have ears of the, that are pointy. They, they all, you know, purr and so on. Um, actually, it turns out, I say that they purr, but it turns out that the animal sounds, the way they're described in different languages differs. So animals purr in English, but... When we describe it in English, we call it a purr, but actually not all cultures describe animal sounds in this exactly the same way. That's a whole other like conversation, but let's just say for the sake of argument, they purr, okay? Um, but they also have differences, right? That they, so I should say, so they all have similar, they have similarities. So people used to think, well, that's the concept. The concept is the description of the category. The concept is your representation of a category. But it turns out that, um, Cats differ. You know, some are big, some are small. They have different eye colors. They have different hair fur um, thicknesses. Some don't have fur at all. Um, so when I ask you, well, tell me the concept of a cat who's a good pet, you conjure something different in your mind than if I say, tell me the concept of a cat who um, is good at catching mice, right? Or if I say, tell me the concept of a cat um, who is really cool and like, like a really cool dude and, you know, like listens to jazz. Like those are all cats. So the point is that you can do it with birds too. You can say, well, if, if you know, tell me the concept of a bird in the park, tell me a concept of the bird of a bird. If your goal is to have a, have a meal, tell me your concept of a bird. If your goal is to have a pet and what so your the brain idea is always here... doing. The idea here idea is, is that, have... go ahead. Your brain's always making concepts. So when I say your brain is, like if we hold everything constant and your brain takes account of the situation and it has to, so what it's doing when it's predicting is it's asking not only what's going to happen, but it's asking what's going to cause that thing. I'm predicting not only what's happening, but what's causing it. 
And when we when we have sense data that we need to understand its cause, we don't say, what is it? We say, the brain, figuratively speaking, doesn't say, what is it? It says, what is this like in my past experience? What is this similar to? And then it cre it, it, re it remembers, it reinstates bits and pieces of past experience that are similar in some way to the present. So it's creating a category online to fit the situation, or you might say it's creating a concept. It's creating a concept to make, it's predicting what concept is gonna be necessary in the immediate future to guide action and to predict and uh, to anticipate sense data and, and their cause. That's what your brain is doing all the time. So it's not like there's, it's not like there's affect and then you slather something on top from culture. It's actually all intertwined. What you're, when your brain is making a prediction, it's using regularities from experience in your past. And if you live in a particular culture, your regularities are gonna be really different than somebody in a different culture. And cultures are not only geographic, cultures can be, they can be locational. Your brain can make very different concepts when you're at work and then versus when you're at home, particularly if they're really different or if you're in the military and you know, when you're deployed versus when you're on base or when, um, you know, if you're, if you're a Republican and a Democrat or if you're uh, a, uh, you know, people from different religious um, denominations or different classes um, in, in any society. My point is that your brain wires itself to its world. Other people partially really curate that world for you. And that is not, that's not an, it's not an abstract thing. People are teaching you how to see how to hear, how to smell and how to feel and how to act. And sometimes they, they're imparting that knowledge as um, part of a, they make meaning of that as an emotional episode or as illness or as an experience where thinking and feeling, it, it, there is no difference between thinking and feeling. It's just an experience. Okay, so this stuff is incredibly interesting to me and you are taking us all on the very journey that I went through in reading your books of beginning to reorganize sort of how I see things. So I wanna um, sort of summarize some of the key things that I think you've just walked us through and we can leverage that to continue the conversation. So obviously if, if I touch on anything that isn't accurate, let me know. Um, the first thing I wanna deal with is the notion of a concept, which I think this is, if I understand it correctly, this seems insanely powerful, which is um, you said that I was asking the wrong question and that the right question was basically to understand that a concept is like a, um, a tool in your toolkit. So if I have this low resolution sense of hmm, something's not right or something is joyful, but I have a thousand different boxes that I can put that in so that my movement forward now becomes more useful to use my word towards my goal, because I'm not only putting it into rage, love, laughter, punch. It's like I have a, a far broader um, set of things that I can find a nuance in the context or in the way that I feel to move this into a different category. Um, you, you give a great example in the book and in your talks about how 
if a woman goes to the ER and she thinks um, that she's maybe having a heart attack and they're going to say, ah, look, this is just anxiety because her buckets are heart attack, anxiety. And when they say, no, you should be putting it over here in anxiety. Okay, cool. I'll go home. And there's obviously all the confusion about the way that women are looked at in terms of being a more emotional beast, more likely to be anxious. So that all gets tangled up in it. But now given sort of the the limited boxes, they tend to go home. Once you tell me, ah, slotted in anxiety, cool. I go home and then they die. And if you're over 65 and female, you are more likely to die from being sent home from a heart attack than you are if you're male. We'll set the complications of why aside. But that once you realize, no, 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 like there are certain feelings that don't belong in the anxiety box and I need to have another place and another place. And, you know, heart attack is one of them and it could be other things. Um, And I heard a story once that there is a, a country that lacks a certain word for a certain shade of blue. And because they don't have a name for that shade of blue, they crunch it over into one of the blues that they do have a name for. So if you take people that grow up with more names for different shades of blue. They actually see different shades of blue where the other people actually don't see it because they only have a mental category, you know, that's more limited. Is all of that accurate so far? That that alone right there is is a game changer when you think about, okay, cool. My job here is to develop a more, a deeper toolkit so that I can begin to um, apply a word I'm not sure you're going to buy into, but that I can apply these tools to the affect that I have, the mood, the feeling that something's right or something's Absolutely. off. And I, I think apply is a perfectly fine word because here's what's going to happen. It's going to be just like the guy who, um, I'm trying to remember his name, Mike something, but I can't remember his last name. Mike, Michael. No, I'm not going to remember because it's a long time ago now, more than 10 years, but I interviewed him. He's one of these guys who had corneal damage. And then when he was 40, he had his corneas replaced. And the way he describes it is like learning. And my words are like learning a second language, but he had to consciously guess very deliberately guess at. So he's very deliberately making concepts to try to figure out what visual input means very deliberately, really hard at first, but then over time he gets more practiced at it. And eventually for some things he can do it pretty automatically. Like his brain just does it automatically. And, um, this is, we're, we're all familiar with this. Anytime you learn a new skill, for example, you, you know, you, uh, or a new workout routine, you know, you have to deliberately think about it. I mean, I lift weights. I've been lifting weights for, I don't know, almost 30 years. And um, I have a trainer and, you know, I get bored easily. So he has to constantly, you know, give me new programs. And at first I have to be really deliberate about what I'm doing because it's a new program, whatever. Eventually I get really practiced at it. Why? Because my brain's predicting now really well. And so this is why, you know, interval training is so effective, right? Because they're constantly changing it. So your brain can't predict. And that means you're getting a maximal workout for your effort, which is good. You're draining your body budget. I don't think we've talked about body budget yet, but you know, you're basically spending a lot of energy. You're going to replenish that energy and you're going to be stronger for it. So at first you are applying, you are, you're consciously guessing or consciously curating. But eventually if you practice, just like driving, if you practice any skill, your brain eventually becomes very, your brain will do it automatically. And that's the value 
of having a wide variety of experiences that your brain can now use to not just to um, you use them to predict those exact experiences in the future, but your brain has this capacity to take bits and pieces and combine them in new ways and to make predictions of novel things that you've never seen before or heard or smelled or what, or felt and what have you. So I think the, the important thing to understand is that every experience you have has the capacity to even a little bit change your brain's function in the future. Every experience you make for yourself that you curate or that you have has the capacity to change your wiring a little bit. And over time, you can have more flexibility and therefore more control over your actions towards your goals you might even change your goals. So what do you say to people that are stuck experience... on something that are stuck on something in the past? Well, sometimes people are stuck on something that it depends on why they're stuck. So it's not always some it's not always a matter of willpower, I guess is the thing. I think one of the things that you know let me just say that um I'll try to think of how to say this. You know, I originally, when, when I went to graduate school, I, I was originally training to uh, not be a neuroscientist. I was originally trained to be a therapist. And one of the things I felt like, I, I felt that sometimes in some of the, some of the psychotherapeutic treatments, I don't want to say that they were disrespectful to people, but I, I felt a little bit like, Interesting. you know, people, when someone is feeling really bad, this is, this is their way of being in the world. And if they could change it by snapping their fingers and doing something different, they would. So obviously they can't. And it's not because they're weak. And it's not because, you know, now we would say, oh, well, you know, that person's a snowflake. It's not because they're snowflakes. It's because they're human. So here's what I, I guess this is, this is the, the conclusion that I've come to after, you know, I was always sort of uncomfortable with, um, well, you know, just change how you think and that will change how you feel. That's actually not true, by the way. And I, it's also, even if it were, it would be like incredibly hard to pull off, even for the smartest, you know, person who has the most willpower in the world. Because it's really not about willpower. I guess that's a, that's the thing I, I I ended up coming to the conclusion. It's really not about willpower. Um, it's about understanding that there's a temporal dynamic here. Your brain is using your past in order to create your present. Well, your future basically, which becomes your present. You cannot go back into your past and change it. I mean, you can try with psychotherapy, but. It's really not going to work very well. You don't think what you can, you can contextualize do, it? Yeah, I think you can, but I think it's a struggle. But what you can do is you can change your present, which becomes your past, to predict your future. So you, you can think of it as you're always cultivating your past. And what would that process look like? You, you're telling yourself a new story? You're giving yourself that new concept? You're giving yourself new experiences so that you can learn to predict differently in the future automatically without willpower. 
But even more so, what I want to say is this, you know, you know um, and so now I'm going to introduce this idea of a body budget in order to, to make the point that I wanted to make about like, what do you tell someone when they're stuck? You know, your brain, your brain's most important job is, is regulating your body. And it, it regulates all the systems in your body um, predictively. Um, that's, there's a fancy word for that. It's called allostasis. Um, but uh, I always describe it to people as like, think of it as a budget. You know, your, your brain is running a budget for your body. And it's not budgeting money, it's budgeting salt and glucose and water and all the things, oxygen, all the things that the se- your cells need to function to keep you alive and well, to you know allow you to do your brain's most important job, right? Which is to pass your genes on to the next generation and have that next generation survive long enough to produce the next generation. I love that. Most people don't know that actually, but that's, that's right. And so it's running this budget and so you can think of like every new thing that you learn and every movement that you make as an expense on that budget. It's an investment. And every thing you eat, every you know time you sleep, every hug you get from another person or whatever support that you get, those are like deposits. And so Normally, like when you exercise, for example, you have a big, it's a big expense. So your body budget is running a deficit briefly. So you feel, you know, when you're exercising, I am not one of these people who like feels great when they exercise. Uh, And, you know, I usually get to a point where I'm like, I hate this and I want it to be over. And that's the point at which I'm really tempted to stop. But I know that not to stop. The feeling is doesn't mean I'm out of energy. It just I'm I'm just starting to really run a deficit now, and now it's going to be unpleasant until I'm done. Um, and then you know if I replenish, right? If I make a deposit afterwards, I make sure that I drink enough and I eat something or whatever, you know, and I get enough sleep that night and whatever. Then I'm then I'm my 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 body budget is balanced. But what if? you don't replenish. What if you're not sleeping well? What if you don't eat healthfully? It's funny that you mentioned protein because that actually, it turns out brains, I think all brains except for two species on this planet eat to a um, protein target actually. Mm. So I always think of myself as being completely dominated by carbohydrates. My whole, I mean like I just, you know, I have to work very hard not to eat carbohydrates, but actually under the hood, my brain is doing what every other organism's brain is doing. And it's, it's tabulating protein, protein, protein. So we talk about that later, but that's, I love that research because it so violates my own, like in my own experience and intuitions. I just find it like completely fascinating, but okay. So, you know, but what if you, what if you live in a food desert? What if, um, what if you don't have enough money to feed your family on a regular basis? What if, you live in a sea of social ambiguity, which is very, uncertainty is very hard on a nervous system, really expensive. Um, what if, um, you know, uh, you have a metabolic problem, like maybe you have a problem with your mitochondria, which are the little powerhouses in your cells. You know, you could be running a, a body budget. And the deficit is never big. It's the tax you pay is little, it's incremental, it's like a slow drip. 
and it just bores a hole, you know, over time. So you're just going to feel like shit for a really long time. When you're in a situation like that, you can try all you want to, um, you know, change how you think. But basically, your, your body has a grip on your brain. You know, it's a conversation. Your brain is always controlling your body and your body is sending information back to your brain. But if you are running a body budgeting deficit, you are going to feel like shit. And you may not be able to just think differently in part because remember, if we freeze the moment, your brain is representing what's in the world and what's in your body. And that's what it uses to make the next prediction, which becomes your perceptions and your thoughts. So if you are feeling like shit, what is your brain going to direct you direct the thought to something negative in the past, something that's similar to the present from the past. So you ruminating and being stuck might be, it might be freed up just by getting enough sleep that night, you know? It might be freed up by just providing people with opportunities to have different experiences. And so they direct their attention to the world and, and then they can create these different experiences for themselves. But if you're running a body budgeting deficit, it's not a matter of willpower. It's, it's, it could be actually impossible. And, and you won't be able to create new experiences for yourself because the two most expensive things your body can do, your brain can do, are move your body and learn something new. Change its own wiring, right? And what do you do when you're running a deficit in your actual bank account? What do you do, Tom? Stop. No more spending. Stop spending. And so what does it mean for a brain to stop spending? Chill, sit. Become fatigued. You become fatigued. You feel your body feels heavy, like you can't move. And you stop learning. And you might even stop paying attention to the world. So you're just going with your internal model, the prediction that's running based on your past experience. And you're not even really adjusting to the context at all. And that, my friend, is the beginnings of depression. All right. Now, in the book, you talk about how, and you do it delicately, but you talk about how, hey, as we get more knowledge and we realize what's really going on, that comes with responsibility. So the first thing you've said just now that that I it doesn't match what I believe to be true. And I'm very open like you. I am drawn to things that make me rethink everything. So if you have an insight here that I'm just missing, but that it would be impossible for somebody who's at a body budget deficit to make these changes that does not strike me as true. So one, what responsibility do we have? I guess let's answer that. And then we can you can show me where the error of my ways with thinking that it's never impossible. If you're, I'll, I'll lump it and say, at least if you're neurotypical, it's never impossible. There are certainly people that fall outside of that. I think it depends. Yeah, I, I think it depends on where you are, actually. So first of all, where, I where think physically? you can be ner- Yeah, physically, like where you are. So for example, let me just say that I think that, um, for example, um, you could be neurotypical, but you could have a mitochondrial um you could have a mitochondrial variant that makes you body budget inefficient. Just it's inefficient. And you're, you're going to be constantly struggling your whole life actually, um, with weight 
and probably with your mood because your body budgets, it's your brain just has to work harder to keep things in, in, in balance. And, and you might, it might never be able to do that because you have a mitochondrial dysfunction. Now let's and say that, that was require... your daughter. What would you whisper into her ear? You got this, you can do it. You can overcome this or, Hey, you just have to accept that this is too hard. It's out of your reach. Oh, I would schlep her off to a doctor and I would have her tested and I would get her medication because that's really what she needs. But since you brought up my daughter, here is what I tell my daughter. So my daughter is of the generation. Um, she's 21 years old and she's of the generation. She's the anxiety and depression generation. You know, mm. she, everyone, I mean, it's a, it's a bloody epidemic, right? I don't have a friend who has a college or high school age kid who isn't anxious or depressed. This is not a weakness. This is, we live in a, if I had to design a culture that would bankrupt a human body budget, it would be this one, seriously. So bad food, you know, but social media, what, what are the enough, elements that are, a, yeah, yeah, bad food, like pseudo food, really. I mean, go into a supermarket around the edges is real food and everything else is really not designed for, it's really designed to bankrupt your body budget, frankly. Your, your brain is predicting that there's going to be, you know, nutrients there, but, but there is, but there aren't any. And actually I, I have a colleague of mine does research on that. It's really fascinating stuff. But if we start talking about that, we're never going to go anywhere else. So, so crappy food, you don't sleep enough. We sit and we stare at screens that, that reflect light at a particular wavelength that is received by a ganglion cell in our retina that screws with our. Um, circadian rhythms screwing with your circadian rhythm is screwing with your body budget and when you look for example at clock genes the genes that are regulate you know, that regulate um uh your circadian rhythm whose whose transcription is affected by these you know light so you know the environment turns genes on and off and so these genes are are dysregulated. Your circadian rhythm is dysregulated. If you look at people, for example, who've committed suicide from depression compared to other deaths, what you see is that the enormous dysregulation in their clock genes. They have circadian rhythm disorders and they don't even know it. So, so screens, too long and too late. Social media, Lack of context, lots of social ambiguity and evaluation, lack of exercise, lack of sleep. I could go on. How about um, just the casual brutality with which we speak to one another? You know? Casual brutality. Tell me yeah. more. How about this? Hey, fuckhead. <laughs> I could be saying to you, hey, Tom, good to see you. Or I could be saying, you're a fucking asshole and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punch you in the face. Like, I love it. Hey, bitch. Like, what is that? And it's not just because I'm old. Because I ask my nephews and my nieces, I'm like, do you know for sure that that person is saying, like, hey, honey? And they're like, not really. I'm like, yeah, exactly. It's ambiguity. And that's a cost. You're paying all these little taxes, all these little metabolic taxes, and you don't even know it. So, and for adolescents, they're... There, you know, all of these things that we think of as, you know, we have names for things, right? Like, so we have sex hormones and we think that they're just for, you know, the maturation of, um, of sex, um, uh, uh, characteristics and we have dopamine and we call that a reward transmitter and we have serotonin and we call that a mood transmitter, neurotransmitter. They're all for regulating metabolism. That's their basic function. They all do different things. 
So um, what you have is you have an adolescent who's, um, you know, going to have be having body, uh, the body budgeting burden is just increased by variability in hormones, just right across the board. Their social environment or what we would call social niche has just expanded tremendously from, you know, grade school to middle school to high school. Plus social media. That's a lot of ambiguity. That's all, again, a burden for the body budget. And they're probably not sleeping enough just because of how high schools organize themselves. They're definitely not getting enough sleep. You know, all these things. And I think the thing to remember is that none of, there are no simple single causes for anything when it comes to biology. They're all multiple little nonlinear causes that influence each other. So there are all these little things that are kind of like piling up, piling up, piling up. And eventually, you know, something breaks. And so I guess the point here is that if you, you know, how long does it take to get to the point where something breaks and you become depressed? Like literally, you know, like, like major depression. It's different for different people in part because, you know, when it comes to people, variation is the norm. You think about a certain, think about any characteristic biological or psychological and it varies. <laughs> there's just really, there's no like norm. You know, there's, it, one of the things that Darwin um, is um, less famous for than he should be. You know, everyone thinks, oh, Darwin, you know, natural selection, evolution. Yeah, that's true. But what is natural selection about? Selecting on variation. That's what it's about. What Darwin showed, which is the really remarkable thing, is that there is no average. There is no norm. That's a myth. It's a statistical summary that's an abstraction. What's real is the variation. So you, so when I say, actually, can, with most people, can they overcome things by willpower? It depends on how, um, how encumbered their body budgets are. There, there actually are some people who are so bankrupt body budget-wise that they have to have electrodes implanted in their brains in order to recover from depression because even medication does. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Do it. If you were you know, going to create the ultimate, knowing what you know, how would you pull that person out? So one thing we haven't talked about yet is um, you, you obviously touched on it in terms of development. But if we're as a species, we're helping to regulate each other's bodies, which is a fascinating concept. I've never heard anybody but you talk about it. 
and you get this sense that we're all in a dance. And in the book, you say that there's this friction between freedom and, oh, God, I forget the other word that you used. Do you remember? It's like the, freedom the and two. Oh, dependency. You mean dependency. You mean, thank you. I, I think what you're saying is that, yeah, I think what I was saying, what I'm saying in the book is that, you know, we evolved as a social species. And we evolved in such a way, what that means is we are the caretakers of each other's nervous systems. We, we make deposits metaphorically and withdrawals in each other's body budgets. Like the best thing for a human nervous system or a human body budget is another human. The worst thing for a human body budget is also another human, you know? And so we, we really do affect people in ways that we are largely unaware of and and other people affect our biology in, in ways that we are largely unaware of sometimes, too. And that's just a fact. I mean, you know, scientists try not to use the F word too much fact, you know. Um, it, but, it, but I mean, it's, it's close, as close to a fact as, as you could ever get to. Um, but we live in a culture that we live in a culture. Western, most Western cultures value individual rights and freedoms. And so how do you balance that? How do you balance having socially dependent nervous systems with the fact that we value individual rights and freedoms? It's a conflict. And in this culture, in the United States, if you even try to have that discussion, somebody's going to try to, like, you know, cut you off at the knees, at the head, whatever. You're, you're like, you know, you're doomed. And I know this from firsthand experience. I, I'm you ready know, to have you, it. I, I won't cut you off well, at the you knees. may be ready to have it, but I mean, in the, there are times when I've raised it in the past when, you know, 7,000 emails and, you know, death threats later, <laughs> seriously. No, I'm not joking, actually. It's crazy. Um, no, I laugh because um, I get the same thing. Yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, okay. So so, um, so my, my point is that um, it's, a, it's a hard conversation to have, but it is a conversation that we have to have. And you know, my personal stance now, now I'm now I'm taking off my lab coat, right? Now I'm not being a scientist now, I'm just telling you. Now as a person, the way that you negotiate that is by taking responsibility, not just for yourself, but more responsibility for other people's well-being. That's the way to handle it. Um, not because people are snowflakes, but because they're human. They're human. And they have human nervous systems. And if you don't want to take that responsibility, that's fine. But you will pay at some point. You will pay. You will pay in higher, um, you know, um, health care costs. You will pay in higher um, in, you know, um, people being unable to um, ha learn, you know, to compromise or to learn about each other. I mean, look at the look at the situation that we find ourselves in right now. I'm not saying that all of it is reduced reducible to, you know, metabolic burden. But I think metabolic burden is kind of the unspoken, un sort of hidden, you know, um, uh, biological element that nobody's talking about and that has a huge role to play in the situation that we find ourselves in. Currently. Because it influences so strongly the affect that you then interpret. Yeah. And so if you're yeah. always like, oh, God, I just don't feel right, then you're always reaching exactly. for the negative explanation because this feeling is like that negative thing that happened. Exactly. Yeah, see, exactly. And that's so, really guess, interesting to me. So so I do, I just want to say, I do, I, I, I don't, I want to be really clear that I, I'm not saying that we all have to be nice to everybody all the time, no matter what. Um, you know, if you talk to my daughter, she will tell you, my mother is not the kind of person who is, you know, um, 
and I'm not saying that we can't disagree and I'm not saying that we can't criticize each other. And I'm not even saying that we can't sometimes get really totally fucking mad with each other. We totally can. But you can also be respectful in the way that you engage people when you totally disagree with them. And even further, I would say, I'm not saying that people um, can't with willpower overcome negative feelings. I'm just saying that sometimes, sometimes actually it's not possible, but I think we have to have more compassion when people suffer. We have to have more compassion for people and, and part of that compassion is equipping them with the knowledge that they need to have in order to help themselves. So, and for example, once they my have daughter. That, do you think that? With... Go ahead. Hmm? This might what you're saying no, might no, answer you, my no, question. No, no, no. You, well, so what I was going to say question. is, once they have that, so you, we all have that responsibility to give them compassion, um, to want good things, to try to create the soil in which they can grow. We I'll even go into we have the obligation to make sure that they are actually aware of how the human body and mind all actually work. But then once they're armed with that information, do they have an obligation to themselves? Absolutely. Are they accountable? Yep. See, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I mean, there's so much to say about that. I don't even I don't even know where to start. But, you know, as a as an educator, this is what I always tell my students. Your education is your responsibility. If you, it really is your responsibility. You're, when you pay tuition to go to university, which is, a, it, you know, speaking as a first generation college student who lived really on the edge of poverty until I was, you know, out of graduate school my whole life. I have to say that I think a university education is a privilege. It really is a privilege that should be extended to everyone, but it is a privilege. And when you pay money, you are paying money for the opportunity to learn. That's what you're paying for. And your education is your responsibility. My responsibility as an educator is to create a context where you can learn. It's my job to create that context well, so that learning is the path of least resistance for you. But it's your job and your responsibility to learn it. And when you do, it's your success, not mine, it's yours. And if you don't, it's also your responsibility. You're don't, you don't go to college or high school or any education, you know, I mean, we're talking about you have, you have to have a certain degree of age before you can, you know, have the, understand that you have this responsibility. But I think high school students can probably deal with it. And I, I think that, um, you know, you are given the opportunity to learn but the learning is your responsibility. It's no one else's responsibility but yours. If everybody else is doing their job, my job is to create a context. And so to some extent, that's what I'm doing by writing this book and by talking to people like you and, and so on. I'm, I'm giving people what I understand to be the best take on what I understand to be the most up-to-date science. And I'm giving it to people and I'm saying, this is my understanding. Use it. If you use it, it's your choice. If you, your choice to use it. If you use it, you use it. If you don't use it, you don't use it. I'm, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you this is how, um, this is how I would do things. And so for example, um, so my daughter is part of this generation and, um, you know, she came up with, 
you know, so she'll say, you know, she would say things like, I'm depressed. And I would be like, are you depressed? Are you depressed? Or you're like, oh, okay, mom, I'm not depressed. I'm just feel my, my body budget is, you know, running a deficit. And, uh. and then, but eventually she came to me and she said, I have a new concept. Okay. Emotional flu. I have the emotional flu. Interesting. Yeah. What is the emotional flu? The emotional flu is I feel like shit. I'm, I'm suffering. I have distress. I don't feel good. Um, I know that everything in my life is okay, but I just feel bad and I want to tell you about it. I just want to tell you that I feel bad and I want to hug and, uh, and you know, and I, but I know everything is okay and, uh, I'm not going to go and, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ruminate. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do these things, but I, I, I do just want to communicate to you that I'm bad, feeling bad and I want you to acknowledge it and give me a hug. And that's the deal, right? That's the deal. Um, because she could come to me and say, oh, this one doesn't like me. And I didn't get, you know, I didn't, I only got a you know, B on this paper. And I, and she can, if you feel like shit and you look around to try to make sense of that shit by looking, uh, by that feeling and looking around at things that go wrong in your life, you're always going to find something. And then that's going to direct your behavior. And then down you go on this spiral. Or take the present moment. I don't know about you, but I've been having a little bit of trouble with my mood over the last uh, couple of months. It's hard. It's a situation that's really hard. COVID is hard for a number of reasons for everybody. And then on top of that, we have all this other political stuff. It's really hard. And there are some, and I have 25 people in my lab that I have to take care of who I can't see in person. And uh, in addition to my family, and, um, and I'm weary, I'm really weary. So some days I wake up and I think, my body budget is probably running a deficit today. So I have to make sure that I, in addition to working out in the morning, I probably have to go for a walk after work. And I also probably should make sure that I get enough sleep tonight. Because I can, if I go for a couple of nights without getting enough sleep, things are going to feel much worse because sleep is just so critical actually to running a healthy nervous system. So I think when you know things you can about how your nervous system works, you, your brain and your body, you can start to intervene earlier so that you never get to the point where it feels impossible by sheer magnitude of willpower just to drag yourself forward in your life. That's, um, and I think there are a lot of things that you can do, little, little things that you can do that add up to a really big effect, um, to allow you to realize your, your, your goals so that you don't blink your eyes and wake up and you're 70 and wonder what the hell happened to my life and what did I do with it? What are those little things? Well, get enough sleep, for example. Um, um, when you, um, the minute that you start becoming furious with someone for not doing what you want them to do or for having a view that you don't like or whatever, remember that um, the Buddhist, you know, Buddhist uh, saying that anger is a form of ignorance. If you're angry, it probably means that there's something that you don't know and maybe you should be curious instead. 
And so that now, anger course, is born you know, using your language. That anger is born of you get a feeling, an uncomfortable feeling from not, not knowing, feeling on the spot. You have limited boxes to put that in. What does this look like? Looks like, ah, oh, the last time I felt like this, I was angry. Boom, you shove it up into yeah. the angry box and you react. You feel angry and your actions are of whatever it means for you to be angry in that situation. Now, you know, sometimes anger is useful. Okay. So, um, when you're playing soccer or, you know, uh, you know, this feeling or when you're in a competition or that's what the data show, like sometimes in sports or sometimes in in a competition or in a debate or why is um, sometimes anger is a, well, why is it good? I mean, the evidence is that, that when people cultivate anger instrumentally, sometimes it actually improves their performance. Why does it improve their performance? Because probably, you know, what you do in anger, anger isn't one thing. It's a whole population of different instances that you can draw on and with different actions that you take. So um, that probably because it's it's initiated, the, the concept that you form has initiated an action plan to engage in a particular way like maybe cutting your opponent off, not letting them talk. <laughs> See, this is and, interesting uh, to me. Like when you start talking about, okay, what are the, if if emotion, what we're calling emotion, and, and I will remind everybody to put it into this context that you bring to it, which is I think quite fundamentally different from how they probably came in thinking about it. But you, you've got this thing, an action potential or an action plan that you're now building out. And we begin to realize why this is the, thing that evolution has handed to us. So when I think about anger being useful out on the soccer field, one, I'm sure you're, you know, the studies about people have a higher degree of pain tolerance if you allow them to express or embody anger. So one, you're just going to be able to endure running more. Um, You're going to be more willing to get into a challenge. So to use soccer, right, you've got to be able to get in there, get physical, also makes you feel more aggressive. Um, So it's, Interesting when you see somebody click in, they've just got a new gear. They run a little faster. They've, you know, they're more aggressive. They're more focused. And so I have thought a lot about whether I should be walking a Buddhist path of, you know, all of life is suffering and you just let it go and you stop um, desire. If, you know, if all of life is suffering and all of suffering is born of desire, you just let go of the desire. And I, I, I was probably too young to have, to say that I have given that a fair shake, but I've looked at that like pretty up close. And what I walked away from that saying is that it, it made me feel less engaged and that I actually liked the game, even though it had highs and lows, if I could find a way to sort of buffer those so that my low wasn't just me falling through the floor and, you know, falling forever and ever and ever. And I had some sort of buffer, which to go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And, and I, you know, I would be a hypocrite if I said that I lived my whole life in a Zen Buddhist, uh, you know, um, state. Nobody would ever accuse me of that. Um, but what I, what I want to say is that sometimes it is useful. And sometimes, the you know, Zen what Buddhist you're describing, state. yeah, and sometimes it is useful and sometimes it isn't. And so, again, the more concepts you can make, the more flexible you are, the more you can tailor your actions to the situation to achieve your goal, whatever that goal is. And sometimes you can even change your goal. And so I would say sometimes, you know, um, you can feeling what you're calling anger. And I would call to me, it sounds like, um, the elongate emotion of, um, ligut, which is energized aggression in a group. 
there's always a groupy feeling to it. It's not something you ever do by yourself, right? So when I watch soccer players or hockey players, you know, I'm from Canada, hockey players, that's Ligut to me. That's like, that's what I'm, I'm witnessing. This kind of groupy sort of, um, I don't mean groupy like fan, I mean group like with group of people, um, energized aggression, you know, or energized, um, you could also have energized um, grief, like where people get together and wail, you know. So there's there are lots of versions of it, but, you know, because again, any emotion category is not one thing. It's a population of things. It's variable. Um, sometimes that is really useful. I'm a very competitive person. Um, I like that about you already. You know, what can I say? And that it is what it is. Um, I am a very competitive person, but I also think that sometimes that's not useful. And and how would you define actually, useful? Do you buy into my idea of it, if it moves you towards your goal, it's useful, and if it doesn't, it doesn't? Or do you have a more nuanced? Yeah, no, I would say that's exactly it's. Yeah, I would say that's exactly right. But so, for example, I don't think that. Um, I think that sometimes winning is not the right goal to have um, because, you know, like just look at the political situation that we're in. Some people vote for a president merely because they just want to fuck the other side. <laughs> they don't actually care who they're, but no, I'm serious. No, they just I, I agree, sadly. But how is that, how is that helpful or useful to anybody actually? Do you have an answer I, I just, to that? I'm, what do you mean? Like, I, which, I actually which, which, think I have a hypothesis on why people do that. But I'm super curious if you have one as well. Oh, I absolutely have one. But I but I, I guess the point that I was trying to make is that. Um, so I'm not trying to deflect. I just I, the point that I was trying I'll to make is I back. think. Oh, it's OK. Um, is that. Um, um, I, I actually think that. Sometimes it's better to be curious and to listen more than you talk, which for me is hard. It's not that I'm not curious. I'm very curious. I just also, as you can see, talk a lot. But I, I, I sometimes think, well, when someone really disagrees with me, I, I don't always actually just want to convince them that I'm right. Sometimes the right thing to do, my goal, is to... Um, listen um, to what they have to say if they're willing to have a real conversation with me. So just as an example, you know, I published something in the New York Times a couple of years ago that was widely misunderstood because um, I actually was trying to make the point about responsibility and choice and that's not how it was taken. And I got all this hate mail and it was very hard and, you know, police forces had to get involved and it was just it was a mess. Yeah, there Over were Over something threats. you wrote? Yeah. Wow. Is yeah. that still, I have to read the article that you seem so even handed to me. The article that got you needing police protection, I have to read. I'm so, sure you're not um, eager to advertise what it is right now, uh, but I, I will maybe ask you no, offline. No, I'm happy to but, tell you. I mean, I'm happy to tell you what it is, but, but I, I just want to make the point that I'm making and then I'll tell you what it is. And then we can go back to the, the other thing. We're like already, we're lining up our things. So that's, this is, to me, this is like the, um, this is like the, 
uh, sign of an excellent conversation because there's just so many, you know, things to follow up on. But I guess the point that I want to make is that after, after, um, after, you know, my, I could calm my nervous system down and my husband, my husband, who I swear I could count on one hand, the number of times he's ever been upset or angry in his life. He's just a really even keeled kind of a guy was, you know, really shaken by this. We were all really shaken by this. Eventually though, I started to email people back <laughs> and say, you know what? I, um, don't listen to insults and threats. But if you have an honest question or you want to have an honest conversation with me, I am definitely willing to have that conversation. But don't be rude. Like, just don't don't threaten. Don't be, you know, like, just don't like, you know, yeah. And and what's really interesting is that I would say, you know, a handful of people actually answered me back and I actually had conversations with them. And in one case, it went on for you know, a, like at least a week. Wow. And, um, and it was a really good conversation. And of course I was left with the, I was, first of all, I was really happy to have those conversations, but I also felt like, well, why would you ever think that approaching someone with epithet after epithet, like just all of this shit coming out of your mouth, why would you think that that would be the way to connect with someone. Like it just, if you're, if you're somebody who's really willing to, to like have that conversation, why not just start that way? You know, I did, I did some, you know, I'll, I'll just be really honest because I mean, you couldn't figure it out already. You know, I voted for Joe Biden and um, I, for the first time in my entire life, called people on behalf of that campaign. I've never done this in my whole life. But I decided I want to talk to people in swing states. And I want to, I really want to, so what I would get a Republican on the phone and that, you know, people, people would say, sometimes they just hang up or they'd be rude. Um, I'm sure that Democrats are rude when they get it, you know, when they're called by Republicans. So, you know, it's not like anybody has the, you know, the handle on rudeness. Um, but, you know, so, but sometimes, They'd be like, well, I'm, a I'm running for Trump. You don't want to talk to me. And I'd be like, oh, no, I, you are the person I actually want to talk to. That's why I'm doing this. And, you know, some people in the end were, were, were not, you know, they were just fucking with me and they didn't really want to have a conversation. But a couple of people really did. And I would say at least once each night I had a real conversation with someone. And from my perspective, that was worth it because... Yeah. I'm not somebody who thinks that I have everything figured out about why things are the way they are. But my goal right now is not to win. It's to fix things. I, I don't, I just want things to be, I want people to be able to debate. I don't necessarily think that everybody has to agree. I mean, I, I think if there were one thing that I would want to convince people of, it's that Harming children is bad and nobody should do it ever. And I don't care what they've done. I don't care what their parents have done. You just shouldn't separate children from their parents. Like if I just had one thing that I just wanted to really convince somebody of, it would be that. That it's just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where they come from and it doesn't matter what their parents did. And it doesn't matter what you believe about immigration. You should never separate a child from, from its parents, ever. Because what you're harming that child. a mass murderer? Okay. Sure. Yeah, you should. But then find the child a home that's safe. 
I guess my, my point, I'm talking about immigration here. I'm talking about like all the things that inflame people. There are certainly some things I feel like I need to put my foot down about, and that would be one, but that would be one based also on science. You know, I just, the damage that you do to a child, um, to a developing brain when you put children in those circumstances is, I think, I think a lot of people just don't realize what, how harmful it is. Um, no joke. But, but, um, and I'm not saying that I don't have really strong beliefs because I do, and I'm not saying that I don't have really strong political beliefs because I do. And I, and I, of course, do I want those political beliefs to reign? Yeah, of course, I would like that. But, but I also feel like country's being torn apart by by really complex set of forces and one of those forces is that people aren't actually talking to each other and they're mm. they're really vilifying each other in a way that is you know unhelpful to the goal of having a democracy now if people don't have the goal to have a democracy there's not really much i can do about that like i you know that that's my goal right um that that's one of the things that's important to me and so um, I think that um, curbing anger in, in in the service of curiosity is very useful for, towards that goal. So, am I? You know, do I think that winning is important? Yeah, I think that winning is important, but I don't always think it's the. Mo we all have multiple goals, and we all have to at any given point in time we have to negotiate which goals we're going to put first. And sometimes. Um, you know, it's not like you give up your other goals. You just sometimes shift around the, um, the, um, what's, what has priority. Yeah. I think priority is probably the angle into that. Cause as you're describing that, I'm thinking it, it seems like just good sense, right? You're asking yourself, okay, I have this smaller thing here, which is, I want to win on this, you know, maybe it's to get your candidate elected, but then you have a bigger thing, which is I want the democracy to be healthy. And if the democracy is healthy and we're not tearing each other apart and we're able to openly debate ideas and, you know, hopefully create a world where the best ideas are rising to the surface. And so that becomes the win, right? And the ability to sort of shift between those goals, because oftentimes, and this is something I see people struggle with a lot, they have competing goals and they don't even recognize. And so one of the things when I'm working with people is just what's your goal? Say it in a sentence. Most people can't say in a single sentence what their goal is. And when you get that conflict, I, the analogy I always run for people is I get the equivalent of people telling me all the time, I want to win a gold medal. And I'm like, amazing. At what? The Olympics? Yes. Summer or winter? Summer? Fantastic. Swimming or tennis? Swimming? Amazing. Backstroke? Freestyle medley? Because you've got to get specific to the point where you know what to do, right? The brain is a prediction engine, but it's trying to actually get to the point where it knows precisely what to do next. And if people never take the time to figure out, oh, I actually want two things that right now are coming into conflict, and then priority is the only way to sort it out. Because these two, in that moment, in that way, cannot coexist. And so now you have to know which one is above the other. And it, once you have that, then it's like, cool, I still want this thing, but this is a higher priority. So I'm going to lean on that. Right. But I think sometimes, I guess what I would say though, Tom, is that sometimes, sometimes, you know, you have, you have, a, you have a 
you have a hierarchy of goals and you have a priority and that priority is stable regardless of what situation you're in right but sometimes that's not the case like um sometimes your goals can shift around even in a given situation and that's okay that's not a sign of weakness that's a sign of flexibility and um so do i you know do i you know do i have particular goals about you know like political things sure but um but those might those might take a back a back you know seat to say some other goal that's really important like um I mean I don't know because I'm I'm making this up as I'm going but like I can conceive of situations where I would say okay well that's important but I'm gonna that's gonna take a back seat for a minute um, because I'm there's some other goal in the immediate future in the, that I want to that I want to achieve that's even more important than democracy although I don't know what that is but I'm, I'm just saying in in the abstract that that would be sure. possible and I think that there are people like that right I think that there are some people who say um, yeah democracy is important but it's not as important as um, uh, you know um, lower taxes. And it's not or it's not as important as immigration or it's not as important as banning abortion. And so I don't some people will say, yeah, I don't particularly like Trump and I know he's a cheater, but I don't care that he's cheating because his cheating actually gets me what I want. And that's most important. And I think that instead of looking at someone like that, if you're if you're if you're a liberal progressive person, instead of looking at that person and, and just like being OK, well, you know you know, being judgmental, what you should do is look at that person and say, huh, okay, tell, how do you get to that point? Like, explain to me, like, I want to understand how you, how, I want to understand how that works. Because I could conceive of a situation where I might feel like that one day. I don't know what it is, but, I, you know, every conversation you have is an opportunity to learn. So, I can't think of a time when I think it would be okay to try to prevent people from voting because, you know, that way I, I'm more likely to get what I want. But I could imagine in principle, in the abstract, that there could be some time like that, that I would, you know, do that. I don't know what they would be, but I can imagine that that would happen. I think it's at least do you, do interesting. I, I, I think I do. do and to me, the the idea that you're trying to understand the person is the right idea and leading you talk about empathy in the book and you talk about empathy as actually being a practice something that you can do like when you understand the way that emotions are created which is really you know the big theme i would say of both of the books um, of yours that i've read and when you understand the brain is the prediction engine and how it's you know sort of making good on what that affect is that it feels and it's trying to interpret the world you begin to realize, oh, okay, there are ways for you to project yourself into somebody else's, you know, interplay of how they feel mixed with the um, the concepts that they have riding on top of that as their sort of interpretation, you know, to use language that they have all these different words to choose from that allow them to understand and express. But the fact that you're leading with just wanting to understand people. And I said this to another neuroscientist, David Eagleman, and, and he laughed, um, which I think is the right answer. But I think you'll understand what I'm trying to get to, which is my whole thing is as silly as this sounds. 
it's directionally, I think, correct, which is you have to approach people that you disagree with, even if you disagree with them violently. You have to first fill your heart with love, which is how I'm interpreting what you're saying. You first have to want to understand like where they're coming from. You have to understand that, like, imagine for a second that your punchline when you read their beliefs is, well, they're just like IQ dumb. They just their their actual brain will never achieve the level that mine will. And yes, I'm I'm saying this tongue in cheek is, but even if you think that, there's a way to go. But I meet them with compassion, right? Like if had I ever met Einstein, I would hope he would have the compassion to have a conversation and, you know, and feel for my inferior intellect rather than lord well, his I, intelligence. Yeah, but I'm laughing, though, not because I don't know why David laughed. I'm not sure what his but, you know, by well, he actually had a pretty, pretty I, powerful answer. But but go ahead. Uh, oh, well, I, I, I would love to hear that answer. But let me just say that's very Buddhist, though, Tom. So I just wanted to point out that, you know, you you. You said that you've um, well, given let's up get that, into but, it. So, but, go ahead. You know, I mean, I'm just going to say that um, compassion is uh, approaching people with compassion is not that's I mean, let's just say that um, being uh, maintaining equanimity and become and remaining detached is only one philosophical path in contemplative um, practice. Another is compassion. That you that you meet people where they are with compassion um, and non-judgment as a way of of learning. That's a that's a very Buddhist um, practice. But so, what did David say? Basically, he said you have to have strategies. So we were talking about okay, really, really, if you wanted to solve this problem, what would you do? And he was talking about how in Native American tribes they came up with this idea of clans. So you had the tribes. And the tribes might be at war, but he said the way that they would begin to broker peace would be to create like the bear clan, the coyote clan, the beaver clan, whatever. And those clans were made up of some of each group. And he said once you had people and you actually talk about this in your book, which is imagine if you brought people and there's a, a real group doing this yeah. where they take Israelis yeah. and Palestinians yeah. and they defeat. make them play soccer yeah. together or yeah. whatever. Yeah. 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 And yeah. they suddenly in sharing the pitch with somebody and competing with them and not just against them yeah. and being able to yeah. talk, talk yeah. openly about stuff, they, they begin to bond. And yeah, you, you, I, it was, you had me concerned with clans, but then when you explained what you meant, that, that, that makes it, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I thought that was Here's brilliant. What, you, yeah, here's what I wanted to do. And I actually, um, this is what I, what I wanted to do. I wanted to, instead of having, um, I never can remember, don't laugh at me when I say this, but I never can remember. I think it's Tumblr. Tumblr is the dating one. There is, is a Tumblr. One? You're probably thinking of Tinder. Tind Tumblr okay, was Tinder. not a dating I always dating get them app. really confused. Tinder and Tumblr, I just never remember. Okay, so but anyways, but you have this, so you could imagine a situation where, you match people for having conversations and they pick a topic they want to have a conversation about, say it's abortion, but then they have to tell you a bunch of other things about themselves. Um, like, are they married? Do they have kids? You know, where, you know, where did they grow up? What religion are they? I don't know, something like that. And then what you do is you like randomly match people by finding characteristics they match on, but not on the thing that they want to talk about. <laughs> So what you have is you have this capacity to have a conversation where you can join with someone and find similarity with them um, and on, on, a, on a bunch of characteristics, but not the characteristic that you're going to debate about. Now, why would you do that? You would do that because, first of all, 
we're social animals. And when we like each other and we trust each other, even when we're disagreeing with each other, we synchronize. Our heart rate synchronize, our breathing synchronize. It actually makes body budgeting so much easier. And so subjectively, or just like in terms of, um, you know, um, common sense, you'd say, well, of course, if I'm talking to someone who's really similar to me and we disagree on one thing, but we can find, you know, agreement on these other things, it's going to be easier to talk about that um, one thing. Yeah. Why is it easier? It's easier because under the hood, there's all kinds of, you know, collective body budgeting going on there that, um, that, that you're not really aware of. Your, your brains are coordinating in a way that you're not really aware of. And that may sound like airy, fairy, gauzy, mystical shit, but it's actually real. And I think that, you know, so I just think that knowing, having these little tidbits with you, it just fills your toolbox with um, more tools. Um, it's not just about having concepts like in everyday life. It's also about knowing how to use those concepts, right? And um, I think that's what these conversations are really about. And that, I think, is the perfect place to wrap this up. Lisa, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. Right. I hope that we get a chance to do this again. Your work is profound to me. It's shaping the way that I think about the brain and how to manage my own life. And um, I really hope that people get out of this exactly what you're hoping they will, because more tools in the toolkit seems like the perfect answer. Thank you so much for coming on. Guys, if you haven't read our books, read them. They are extraordinary. Um, they will influence how you think about yourself and your own internal life and thinking of things that will influence how you think about your internal life. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe here. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.